All right. So wait, whose voice is who? This is the silky sweet voice of Gomer. <laughs> and I'm Luke. All right. You guys sound exactly like. So, so. <laughs> have we met before? Luke? Yes. Yes, but I can't remember where. It's Friday, September 9th, 2016. This is Catching Foxes. In this episode, we interview Everett Fritz. Everett is being a missionary, going out into the world, trying to teach parishes and dioceses how to engage in small group discipleship and mentoring. It's pretty epic, pretty wild ideas that this man has. I think you're going to like it. Also, I really, really, really wanted to name this episode Everett Fritz, the Masturbation Man. But I didn't, because things. So, enjoy the show! Have you heard our uh, podcast before? I'm kind of assuming that you have. I'm a, a first-time caller, first-time listener. Okay. So I, I said I was a big fan of Catching Foxes, and truthfully, I just said that to get on your show. Um, <laughs> boo, <laughs> boo. We, we don't like so liars I've, I've on our show, things Everett. about it. I just don't listen to podcasts very often. So. Up till now. Up till now. I, I just I pray the rosary in my car like a good holy soul. Uh, uh, do you have what they call a life? Yeah, yeah. I, I try to pray in my car because that's like nice, nice moments of silence to get some prayer in. So, um, that, at least that's what I've been doing recently. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's my excuse. Oh, well, to... someone get him the Pope Francis Award. I know. Uh. <laughs> I need to be holy. Mother Teresa inspired me that, with that's her awesome. uh, with her crazy, uh, crazy, you know money laundering or whatever she's been accused of <laughs> oh gosh it's so <laughs> annoying i posted a thing about mother Teresa on um my parish website's facebook page or my parish's facebook page and uh immediately immediately i got some guy named james wood not james woods uh but james wood to he he posts like the most horrible screed against her so i just immediately dropped down and went hide hide and so <laughs> it's just me is it just me, or did I don't recall any of these like criticisms of Mother Teresa prior to her being canonized? And all oh, of a sudden, it's just you. I, it's just you. I, okay. Yeah, because I, I had I had heard it within the past couple years. Uh, I believe it was Christians wrote a thing against her. Then there was some stuff on the Penn and Teller show. Okay. Um, Which was recycled Christopher I, Hitchens stuff, right? Yeah, like, it yeah. seems like it all kind of started with Christopher Hitchens, from yeah. what I've read about it. Because I was like, "Where is this coming he, from?" He he made a like a, a faux documentary about her called "Missionary Positions" or something like that, and he wrote Ugh. he wrote a handful of articles on it, and then or on her alleging that she was, uh, you know, um, using delighting in suffering because she's a Catholic, therefore everyone had to suffer. Um, refusing modern medical practices because, oh, you know, she's not a doctor and she's not building a hospital. Um, right. But he couldn't understand. And she opposed abortion like a good Catholic, and he that flipped, made him flip his mind. So, uh, right. And he denies anything about holiness or sanctity or miracles. So, of course, all of that is stupid to him and, right. and, and impossibility. So it's it's funny that a large portion of his stuff is devoted to bashing not really Mother Teresa, but all of Christian belief as such, and she just embodied it, so he had to destroy her. Yeah, I, you know, I've been reading some of it this week because it was blowing my mind that people would criticize such a, such a holy woman, but I guess it, when you spend your life picking up 
the dead off the streets and serving the poorest of the poor. And, and if, if you're a utilitarian at heart, uh, such a life would be um, strange, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it would be a mystery. Mm-hmm. And you, you got to think there's got to be some sort of deeper uh, motive here. Um, she well, must have wanted to make them Catholic. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's or what it, Catholics, Catholics are supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. And it when um, I was reading this one piece on the Huffington Post, and it just really struck me that there's no uh, understanding. It's it's like it's like you either have to be curing a disease or trying to install some a political or economic system to fight poverty and there's and there's no real understanding of of accompaniment and just being with a person right so it's and so which really ultimately just like leaves them lonely and like we should absolutely try to fight for those things that what is like right true and just but i don't think you do that at the expense of alienating the person which is i don't think it's even a concept to a lot of postmodern people well it, it occurred to me this week i was reflecting on mother Teresa and, and thinking about, you know, I work in the, in the ministry of trying to make disciples in the church. And Mother Teresa probably was one of the most successful in the 20th century of, of making disciples. I mean, look at how rapidly the missionaries of charity grew, um, how much they've spread all over the world, how famous she became for who she served. She had probably one of the worst evangelical strategies in the history of the church, <laughs> I mean, her strategy, if, if you were to sit a whole bunch of people around a table uh, and say, come up with methods of evangelization, uh, her strategy was, I'm going to go find people who are about to die. I'm going to pick them up and I'm going to hold them and I'm going to show them Christ's love. And then they're going to die. So they're not going to be able to pass that on to anybody. <laughs> so, and then she's going to go to the next dead person and do the same thing or next dying person. And, and, you know, it occurred to me, I was like, well, well Gosh, I mean, this is that's not a great, great if you're actually in the mindset of, you know, winds, uh, wind build send and you know, making disciples and spiritual multiplication and all this stuff that we talk about in, in catechetical circles when we feel like we want to be smart. Uh, it, there, you know, Mother Teresa didn't do necessarily any of that in terms of coming up with a strategy of who her demographic was of of who she's going to serve. She's felt called to go serve the poorest of the poor and love them and bring Christ to them. And that was her apostolate. And it spread like wildfire, which just goes to show what happens when you're holy. I mean, when you're holy and people, it, I can't tell you how many friends I have that say they, they, um, had a conversion when they looked John Paul II in the eye at like a world youth day or some sort of encounter with John Paul II, that he had such holiness about him that he could look at someone and convert them. <laughs> and, and they were so attracted to that, that they couldn't help but question and, and reflect on um, their own life and their own sin and feel called to Christ. Um, you know, two seconds in a room with Mother Teresa could change someone's life, but you spend years with me, and, <laughs> and that doesn't doesn't necessarily have the same effect. And you've plunged deeper into atheism, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, there's clearly no God. Uh, who wants to get drunk and hurt ourselves? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes you makes you realize just how much further you have to go if you want to want to really reach the depth of who God is. You know, I feel like my evangelization yeah. strategy revolves around ministering to the rich. And the comfortable and joining them. It's really a ministry of accompaniment whereby I win, build, and send the rich into my life to make it richer. 
It's funny you say that. I was uh, talking to a friend of mine who was going to some third world country to do missionary work and talking about how he had such a love for the poorest of the poor. I genuinely have a great love for the rich kids, and that's who I want to serve. I I mean, just in in working in ministry in the church, like those rich, snotty teenagers that are entitled are the ones I have the deepest love for. (laughs) And I don't know really where that comes from, but I mean, there's there's a different sense of poverty about them in terms of of poverty of not knowing what it's like to not be attached to things, you know, man, I'll uh, tell you what it was. I took a group of kids to, uh, uh, you know, wealthy upper middle-class kids to, uh, star of hope in Houston, which is a homeless shelter. And they do a lot of amazing work there. So we do service projects there. And our job was to clean the kitchen and to peel potatoes for two hours until it was time to serve meals. Then we serve them lunch. And then we get to, after they're all done, we eat lunch with them. And my kids, I will never forget this, kid had never held a broom in his life. And he had a normal little kitchen broom, and he was pushing dirt like like some crazy person. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm just, I don't know, I've never used this thing before. And I was like, this thing? You mean a broom? You mean a broom, you spoiled piece of shit? You mean and I I like I like had to walk out. I walked into the walk in the walk in refrigerator and I was like, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Okay, I gotta go back. So I was like, this is how you use a broom. Tell your mom she failed. Tell your dad he's a monster. And then uh we information everyone. Yeah. So has he never even seen a broom used, like he's, even in a like movie or something? Uh, I think. Well, maybe he has, and he's just stupid. That's always I, uh, I, I can't fathom not even seeing somebody ever sweep before. Maybe he saw, and it didn't bother him enough <laughs> to remember. Do you watch all the? Uh, do you remember every janitorial scene in every movie you've seen? Oh, look at that! Look at that brush stroke he does with uh, with that mop. <laughs> But I just feel like it's it's just would get ingrained in memory. Like, oh, that's a person sweeping, you know, like uh, you know, it's like seeing a faucet running or something. You know, I don't I don't need to see it run to know how it works. But well, oh, well, gosh, apparently his house must be really dirty. It's, <laughs> He's no, never it's, seen a. He has he has a nothing. He has nothing but Roombas. He has a whole cornucopia of Roombas. No. They just clean and go away. Oh no! Oh my gosh! God help! I don't me. even. I don't even know what you know, a Roomba is. It's those the robot vacuums. Oh, They're like small sorry. little discs. And I'm can... not caught up in your anima technia vacua, Gomer. Oh, so... okay. Well, to those of us no, who are, you. Roombas are an aspirational purchase of ours. <laughs> I saw on uh, um, really getting off off subject here, but somehow we got some Mother Teresa to Roombas. But I saw on Jimmy Fallon uh, the other day uh, they were playing Roomba beer pong. And I said that that is a goal for my life. <laughs> this is why I'll never be holy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's because my life goals consist of putting playing beer pong with Roombas. He ministered to those rich kids. Your your dreams yeah. will come true. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. And that's a ministry of accompaniment, beer pong. If I had that in college, I that I probably would have done that. Like if, if we had had that in <laughs> You'd our house. still be in college. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would I'd be like yeah this is pretty much it the height of civilization right here everybody a, a robot I, vacuum taking a cup around the room and I'm trying to make this into it God bless America it looked extremely hard which means that you would be drinking very little <laughs> so because uh, 
yeah, it, I mean, the Roomba just keeps changing direction. So you know, anyway. Well, since you're you not a, I, you're not well, Will Crick, since you're not a, a listener of the show, <clears throat> uh, <laughs> one of the things that we have our listeners have created is a drinking game along with the show. That every time we mention Franciscan University, everyone has to take a drink. <laughs> uh, so I think they've had maybe two drinks so far, but uh, but uh, I th- I think we can we can up to Annie that at Franciscan we drank before we played beer pong. And beer pong became exponentially more appealing the more you drink. Beer mm-hmm. pong with a Roomba? That sounds like I'm going to do a fifth year of college. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like my name is Luke. You know, can't insert oh, my last name here. And we're going to do a victory lap, kids. Victory. Pretty sure we played beer pong on, on – uh, although I don't re- recall there being beer in the cups, which is a total Franciscan thing too. Uh, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure we played it at, at our household retreat. Um yeah, that is non nonstop. It was a really holy weekend. In fact, we were at Scott Hahn's cabin because a guy in our household had a, a hookup. So we got into Scott Hahn's cabin, and we had uh, we ended up infuriating the neighbor, and he threatened to kill us. Um, oh. We've got <laughs> so, a good story about a retreat yeah. at Scott Hahn's cabin. Yeah, we oh, are uh, my our, pig. Yeah, the slaughtering of a yeah. pig. Yeah, we're permanently banned from Scott Hahn's cabin. <laughs> Dear Doctor Hahn, if you ever want to be on this show. Uh, we'd love to have you. If not, we totally understand why. <laughs> and, and, and strangely enough, the, the person who slaughtered the pig is now a Catholic priest. So yeah. yep, there you there go. And he's, and he's a holy man of God, too. I know him well. Eh, he's all right. Let's not get crazy. Yeah, you know. He's, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's, you know. Yeah, that was uh, when you have to hide a priest because you're scared he's going to be arrested because you killed a pig on some poor person's <laughs> property who had no idea that uh, you were there. You're doing something well you're, you, if you're in college. You <laughs> executed a pig mafioso style. Yes. Wait, Scott Hahn had no idea you were there. No, he no, knew. it he was knew. it was oh. it was on his uh, it was on his name. So we didn't want to kill the but pig. Maybe on we should, on you should tell your listeners the story now because they're just getting bits and pieces. Oh yeah. yeah. So I feel like at this okay, point so I, I'm college, looking at the time clock on the on the uh, recording right now. We're uh, 16 minutes in. We are. And I'm, I, if I were a listener right now, I'd be like, "What the hell are they talking about?" No, it's, they're <laughs> so used to this now. <laughs> we had a pig, a live pig. Raised it to about two or three hundred pounds. It was huge. Put it in the bed of a truck. It destroyed a buddy's uh, basement trying to do that. Took the truck. Took the pig in the truck to. Scott Hahn's house realized we don't want to kill a pig and have its blood everywhere on his property. Let's go find some remote place to do this. So a bunch of Makes men sense. all wearing navy blue sweatshirts and jeans, essentially a, a cult outfit, go driving around. We find uh, a place with a property. It turned out it was just a big front yard. There's some stones there. Tie the pig to the stone. Shoot the pig repeatedly. It didn't work very well. Then one guy. I've never heard an animal squeal like that in my entire life. <laughs> oh my I, had, I did not know that could happen. So if you were if you were an adult sitting on let's say the front porch of their own property, watching a whole swarm of cars show up, all everyone's wearing essentially the same thing because they're wearing their household shirts. They all get out, and all of a sudden you just hear screaming and gunshots. You would probably and a call the just slowly walking just, away. You would probably call the cops. Too. The pig yeah. Well, they didn't know it was a pig. Front porch. In the words of in the words of uh, Father Paul, who who pulled the trigger, uh, it sounded like a a uh, like a twelve year old screaming to get free, and uh, a really fat twelve year old. Hey, it's Predazone. Um. <laughs> so they eventually, its dead body was thrown in the bed of the truck. They took it to Scott Hahn's uh, Blake House or whatever. 
And uh, that's when all the cops showed up while one of our friends was elbow deep in blood and there were like three guns <laughs> and uh yeah it was a terrible thing and we were banned forever and the, uh, in the words of dr han why didn't you guys just shoot it at our house and we we're like yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to be respectful and in the end we became felons <laughs> that's, that's like the most amdg story ever we were trying to be respectful and in the end we became felons <laughs> and we have a show did, title was there... <laughs> were there any charges that were that were brought against or um, no well, i think one of the guys got a ticket yeah they got a ticket. they got their guns <laughs> confiscated and because they used the weapon on someone's property blah 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 but uh they got their <laughs> yeah like where was it raised somebody's basement they bought well, it no, they like, bought it on yeah they bought it but then it, it needed to be like two weeks out before the thing so he put it in his basement and it ended up breaking out of the pen that he built and destroyed the entire basement. Anywho. Like, you know when you were a kid and you're like, oh my gosh, I just messed up big time. You just, like, feel bad about it. I, I don't Try think I it. ever raised a pig for slaughter in my basement. But... <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> that's not, a, that's not a when I was a kid's story. <laughs> it just, it, we all, I mean, I just remember we are like, at the end of it, this will be the last thing. We were all like, oh, my gosh, guys, we need to stop doing crap like this. This has to stop. <laughs> we're not telling anyone this. The very next day, I am at work at the Olive Garden going, look at when we killed a pig yesterday. It was great. <laughs> and then right down that rabbit hole, our household went yet again. Anywho. So, Everett, how are you doing, man? And, and you know what the scary thing is? Real quick. The scary thing is AMDG probably gives the most uh, – youth ministers to the church absolutely of any household so these are the people that are raising our young people in the faith <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> oh, if you go to any am if you were to go to any am dg wedding and if a plane were to like crash on the bathroom party two things would um happen uh, number one would be there would just be like nicotine splattered everywhere because that's all that anyone is uh, putting into their bodies. And two, there'd be no more Catholic youth ministers for the most part. Yep. Like it would just be kind of over with. Like, yeah. Well, sorry. That joke was funnier in my head. So anyways, <laughs> uh, Everett, how are you? I'm great. I'm so great. what do you like? What do you do now? Because I know you were a youth minister for a bit. Yeah. Thanks are you for still asking. doing that? Are you like, I'm, out of parish I'm... or? I'm crazy. So I quit my job at the Augustine Institute on a prayer, um, which is basically I felt called to go out and form people who are forming disciples. So I, I worked um, over 10 years in youth ministry. I've been several different parishes, uh, really in Denver, have been uh, consulting with several parishes on uh, helping them understand and do small group uh, discipleship-based ministry with teens. Um probably ruined my career many times over in the last 10 years, just rethinking ministry and then burning my bridges by saying, saying controversial things. Uh-huh. Uh, Go on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a speaker, speaker and an author. I'm about done with my second book now, but my first book came out this past year and um, it was a chastity book for guys who struggle with porn and masturbation. And uh, just from mentoring high school boys for many, many years, I know it would shock people to find out that they have, struggle with sexual sins. Um, but what frustrated me was that none of these guys could ever get any real mentoring and they were starving for some mentoring on how to actually overcome this problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I kept finding resources. Okay. This is the theology of the body. Well, great. 
you can't paint the ideal and not tell somebody how to get there. It's like saying, here's what heaven looks like, and then never telling anybody, well, here's the here's the gospel message and what Jesus came to actually teach us to do and how to how to get there. Um, so I was looking for mentoring resources and uh, Jason Aberdeen. Uh, Chris Stefanik and Mary Beth Bonacci, I was on an email thread with them, asking them for recommendations, telling them exactly what I was looking for is something that introduced Christ as uh, at the heart of the battle, um, introduced uh, learning to understand your wounds and present them to the Lord for healing, and then giving the practical disciplines to go along with that, and really a comprehensive guide for, for men who struggle with these problems. And they were like, yeah, that, that book has never been written, doesn't exist. So then I was like, Jason, write this book. And uh, I think Chris Stefanik, who's always encouraging or just trying to get rid of me, um, when I bought, hey, Chris. <laughs> He's, no, Chris is actually a really encouraging guy, but, um, but Chris was like, you should write the book. And I was like, ha, nobody's going to read my book. Like, if it has Jason Everett's name on it, it'll sell, you know? Uh, but um, uh, next thing I know, you know, I, I started putting pen to paper or rather started typing out my thoughts on it and um, wrote a book about it that came out earlier this year. And it's called um, Freedom. Uh, sorry, here's my here's my plug for my stuff. Oh no, please do. Go. Yeah, so um, Freedom: Battle Strategies for Conquering Temptation. Um, just an aside, and if Ignatius Press is, is listening, I'm very sorry to my publisher, uh, but I hated the title. <laughs> I lost, <laughs> but I couldn't come up with anything better. So um, it, it's too vague in my opinion. But uh, um, regardless, it's a good. I think it's a good book. Um, I, I've had quite a few glory stories in the last year of. People who've read the book and said that it's, it's brought them not just um, um, help and redemption and put them on the road to healing, but also uh, help strengthen their relationship with Christ. Um, which segues then into what I'm really doing right now, which uh, I launched an apostolate this past year, or rather I've been preparing to launch an apostolate, um, which is about mentoring uh, parishes and dioceses on how to do small group-based youth ministry. Because uh, about five or six years ago, I looked at my youth group and actually, I looked at a picture on my desk of a group of, of young people that I had um, had at a, a big, huge student youth conference, and it was a huge group, and I built the youth group from scratch. And I counted in the picture how many of them I knew were still practicing their faith in college, and it was something like 10 out of 100. And uh, I was not—and at that point, I was working for uh, Insert National Youth Ministry Organization here um, and doing trainings on youth ministry and— starting to become a voice in the world of youth ministry. And I was like, boy, it, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like if, if 10 out of a hundred is only becoming Catholic. So, um, that eventually led to me experimenting with, with, uh, small discipleship groups. And then, um, really, uh, working on that model and coming up with best practices over the course of the last five years, uh, basically rethinking and redoing the entire way I do ministry. And then the entire way I've been trained and I looked around the country and would go to national training conferences on, on youth ministry and discovered that virtually no one is training people on how to do small group discipleship. And I was like, that's what I want to be doing. I don't want to be writing resources, which was what my job was at the Augustine Institute, was writing the, the small group resources. Um, mm -hmm. I was like, I want, to, I want to train people. I want to get out on the road and actually help people think around um, uh, turning youth ministry in the church on its head. Because... Uh, uh, basically, uh, when people ask me, what is your organization about? I say, I, you know, in a nutshell, uh, Catholic youth ministry sucks, and I'm trying to make it suck less because um, <laughs> the results the results are not good. So um, and what I realized this past year is that uh, where I got stuck for many months on end as I was discerning this 
is that um, there's a reason why nobody gets involved in um, it, it specifically and explicitly in training and consulting with small numbers of parishes at a time to affect a real change. And that's because there's no money in it. Ain't no <laughs> money in nope. it. No, yeah. you can't. You can't. Uh, yeah, there's a reason why programs come out is because you can sell a program to thousands of parishes. But if you want to affect real change and actually help uh, staff and parishes and pastors understand how to do something differently and make it work, you've got to work with small numbers at a time. You do. Or, uh, or, or you work at the diocesan level where they do the trainings where they invite the small parishes in. And the dio- the diocese has to pay you a crap ton of money in order to make it worthwhile to miss your And then you got to deal with and bureaucracy and red tape and all, all kinds of Which other things. Which is um, the things. worst. Right. What? So, I, I mean, I've heard that those people who, who work there aren't that bad. Luke, I want to say two <laughs> things to you right now. They are trash. They are trash. You are trash. It's the worst. I'm sorry, guys. I've been drinking and I haven't eaten dinner yet. <laughs> just like anything, uh, just like any working at any parish, uh, if you have a pastor that you have a like-minded vision with and a great relationship with, you hold on to that and it work well. Same thing in a diocese. Is if everybody's on the same page, great. Um, unfortunately, uh, rarely have I seen. Uh, show me that diocese. <laughs> yeah, show me the diocese or that parish. I mean. It, People would be mortified if they found out what it was like to work at a parish or a diocese. It's some, one of the most dysfunctional <laughs> dysfunctional environments to work in sometimes. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for that, which I don't want to get into because it's mostly boring. Um, but, you know, the heart of it, when I actually looked at business model uh, and I was like, okay, train diocese, train parishes. I don't want to be a diocesan director. Um, what do I do to make money? And I was – Chris Stefanik, again uh, – a guy that um, I, I just do whatever Chris tells me to do. That's basically my career path. And now I'm broke. He is handsome. He is um, handsome. Yeah, he is, he is <laughs> handsome. He's got a he's got a compelling voice. That Chris Stefanik uh, tone of voice. Man, if I could mimic his tone of voice, I would be a millionaire. Um, but yeah, Chris said to me, he's like, "I'm going to solve your problem, but you're going to hate me for it." And I was like, what? He says, you should be a missionary. And I was like, ah, oh, crap. <laughs> and he's like, think about this. He's like, find 100 people that believe in your mission. Um, have them pick on and take on an extra uh, utility bill. Um, he says, they raise your salary, basically raise your salary, and then go and work in diocese and parishes for, for cheap, um, doing what you know needs to be done. That way, you're not dependent on selling services in order to feed your family. And I was like, it's brilliant. So um, now I'm broke. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, quite, quite honestly, it's actually been a huge blessing. Uh, but, um, because all I've, 100 of those people are millionaires and now yes. you're sick rich. <laughs> <laughs> Suckers! No, so I've been, I love uh, you, parish worker. <laughs> I, I, I offered it to the Lord and, and decided to go out and, and do it. I left my, uh, I was working interim in a parish for until June this past uh, summer, and then the last ninety days I've just been fundraising like crazy. So when you um, went real quick, when you offered it to the Lord, were you in your car praying a rosary instead of listening to our podcast? Probably. Oh. You know, that's that's where I get that's where I yeah get all my that's crazy the, ideas. That's where the holiness comes in. Dang it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, everyone, if you really want to be holy. Uh, Press up. stop now. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Yeah, stop listening to this podcast. We were already talking about slaughtering a pig. <laughs> and, and how? <laughs> yeah. If you're still with us, God bless you. I mean, this is a, an exercise in, in purgative, you know, 
purgative redemption or whatever. <laughs> we, um, we could talk about our tiny penis jokes. Um, <laughs> I like this podcast. This is great. If I'm yes. on EWTN giving nope. an interview, I got to be really careful what I say. No, 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 no. Every no, single no. time. Every single time Raymond Arroyo interviews me, I always get in a one or three tiny penis jokes in there. <laughs> Raymond, we all know tiny penis that you. Uh, <laughs> tiny like penis. This, this is the last, the last like dirty thing that I, that I, that I'm going to say that I have um, a question. When you write a book on masturbation, do you like like oh in your head go tee like every time like you have to like that you have to that you have to like write about it because that's what I would do. <laughs> No, I was really I, – I wanted to be as blunt and as forward as I could be. In, no, I, in, I, I think that's, that's great. It's, it's an, it's not, for me, it wasn't an uncomfortable word to write. Uh, I know my wife, I had proofread uh, some of the stories that I told because uh, I didn't want anything in the book that she didn't approve of. Um, sure. But And she was like, man, you say masturbation like a lot. <laughs> I was like, that's what I'm writing about. And But it's, it's an unco- it is an uncomfortable word to say, much less like give a talk on. And, and I mean, you know, there's a reason why Matt Frad's the porn guy. I feel like porn's a little bit more socially acceptable to talk about. So you say masturbation, like everybody in the room turns red. Um, so that's, you know, I, I hope I don't end up. I mean, Matt Frad's the porn guy. I hope I don't end up being known as the masturbation guy. Too late, just, too late. That's a new episode title. New episode title. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I mean, to be fair, that would probably help me sell some books. So, you know. The best part would be if anyone ever Google searches your name, it would come up Everett Fritz, the masturbation guy. If you ever want to, okay, for I would, for I would hate to be known as the masturbation guy, but just. Out of sheer hilarity, I hope you do title this the masturbation guy. Yeah, don't 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 beat yourself up about it. Go on. <laughs> Have you ever heard uh, of the song "The Big M" by the band Lust a Control? Uh, no, I don't listen to music. Remember, you, you need to. You ask, It's an old '80s Christian rock song. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm just gonna throw it out there. We do don't we do, don't have to talk about it. I'm just gonna say "The Big M" by the band Lust Control. Fan. Fantastic. Is it a play um, on? Is it like a parody of Michael Jackson's "Beat It"? Or, nope. No, it's, okay. it's like it's like a it's a <laughs> that Christian right thrash punk song. It's great. <laughs> oh gosh, three words that should never be together. It's Sexual appetite? Forget it. Get real. It's artificial sex. Oh, listen. In the eighties, they were a glory. In the eighties, it actually like meant something good. Um, so okay, so full a discrepancy. Just so you kind of are aware of the context of all of these uh, conversations. And I'm sorry, you're gonna have to like insert an elevator song at this point in time when when you like edit it. Sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Sexual sin is a sin against your own body. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Your body's for the Lord. Uh, I see a lot of the same stuff that you are talking about is that, you know, especially at the parish and at the Dawson level, it's really like, it's, it's not even like backwards. It's just wrong. Right. You know, and there really is this large, we, this, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's ultimately growing pains. I could be wrong. But, you know, the fact that if you, like, 
look at who are, who are a lot of the youth ministers right now. It's people who went to Stubbable conferences, and you're starting to see people being hired at diocese. People who worked at who went who went to school over at you know either Ave, Steubenville, Christendom, were like at like Notre Dame or or were, you know kind of other good ones there. Like really like really like solid Catholics, and I think we all kind of thought that content, really orthodox content, was going to save everything. And we're starting, and and I'm starting to see. Oh, it's that, and having to invest in people. Have you have you experienced that at all? I mean, could you speak to that a little bit? Or oh my gosh, yeah. I I don't think I think 15 years ago, we could have said we don't have any good resources in the church. uh, That it's that the the stuff we have out there that's put out there is crap. Now that crap still exists, but there are so many good resources that are that are. That's orthodoxy that uh, that preaches the, the true content of the faith that has depth to it, and that is not enough. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, there is a. It's interesting. I, I see the same thing you do with youth ministers. I would uh, go a little bit further and say that uh, what I see with youth ministers is that there are a tremendous amount of people that um, are very wounded people that. Um, for whatever reason, at some point when they were a teenager, teenager or when they were uh, an adult or middle-aged, they um, got fed or found some sort of meaning in their life because they served young people. And then they ended up as the youth minister in their church. And they're like overweight. They're a complete mess in their life. They have no discipline in their life, and they're the youth ministers. Uh, and what? Yeah. And, and, and I don't mean like you could go to some national youth ministry training conferences and say, okay, we're going to do a, a, a workshop that entails CrossFit just so you guys will lose some weight. And I, and I don't mean to, 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 I, I, yeah, this is, you know. Oh, Everett Fritz with the, Everett Fritz with the fat shaming. Keep it going, buddy. That's why I get myself in trouble is because, yes, because I, I agree. Do, I, I am a bit of a straight talker, um, and, and a bit of a renegade in, in that sense. And a bullshitter continue. <laughs> I can't tell you how many how many people I have found working in the church, not just in youth ministry, but in general, who serve from a sense of they're trying to heal their own woundedness rather than serving from a true sense of of um, wanting to serve the Lord um, and, and having their own personal prayer life and spiritual spiritual life and something that's being fed. I was at the well. I'll, I'll name drop here uh, the NFCYM membership meeting. Here, I'll never be invited back now that I just said that. Um, but you know, and I was, uh, th- there was some really good collaboration that happened at different points. There's a lot of really good people there. Cause this, this is, if you don't know what that means, it's, uh, basically a membership meeting of the national federation of Catholic youth ministry and all the diocesan directors for the most part from around the country are, are there at this meeting. But then you also have all these people that are uh, run youth ministry organizations and some of the people that got up on stage to even just lead prayer or the the liturgies. First of all, we had no adoration during the week. There was no tabernacle during the week. Uh, and, and I put that on my survey and said, this is bullshit. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I, I tried to say it as nicely as possible because I wasn't trying to rock the boat. I was trying to make friends. Um, but then, you know, uh, somebody from oh, – I won't name the organization. Somebody got up to lead prayer, and they said, okay, for to, to – Pray at the session. I, I got Luke. I got really off track here. But to pray at the no, session, we're going to uh, take a basket that was woven by teenagers, and we're going to pass it around every table. And and we want you to put your intentions, it just mentally, into this basket. And while you do this, we're going to pray some meditative music. And they prayed this weird Native American, like New Age, shitty music. 
while we passed around an empty basket and looked at it. And and I, 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 it was everything I could do to not scream, what the hell are we doing? Like, this is, it, it just boggled my mind. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you see in dioceses and parishes. I mean, you get people who are wounded. What? Who... In dioceses? I've never seen that in my diocese. <laughs> what? No is working for the church that, that should have been fired a long time ago. You have um, well-intentioned people working there that are trying to create real change, but it's an uphill battle. You've got people that are, that are truly dysfunctional. Um, and, and you've got a, a tremendous need in the church to not just talk about orthodoxy, but also talk about methods and discipleship and and um, how do you actually engage a person, walk with a person, teach a whole parish to have this mindset? Um, how do you uh, minister to pastors so that they're not overwhelmed and burnt out? How do you um, create true community among your pastors? How do you have not dysfunctional staffs? How do you administrate? Because pastors never got training on administration in seminary. Um, I mean, there, you can go on and on and on and on and on about all the different problems. And meanwhile, in a parish— it's like a hospital. Day in and day out, people come in with spiritual and emotional needs, sometimes physical needs, that need to be addressed. And when you have people that are caregivers on a day in, day out basis, it, it, it's who are not healthy themselves, it's a recipe for disaster. And well, that's it, parish, parishes and dices in a nutshell. It's weird because I, I think I, I think you hit on a lot of really really interesting <laughs> I things. I can incoherently for ten minutes. No, no, no like because so like, just about the fat I, people. Go on, Luke. Just about the fat people. <laughs> so it's two overweight guys who struggle with their identity because of that. Um, Myself so, included. You know, you could throw. You could. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Go ahead, Luke. You're fine. No, no, no. Because I because I think what you are pointing to and i don't know if i would like go that extreme but i definitely like see what you what you're like saying is that for so long within uh non-priest well not even not in the priest but like we didn't really pay attention to our interior life or our relationship with god we treated it like it was a dirty word and this was a thing that the priest have to worry about we just have to feel good about being catholic and i think and and so you do have these things where like people have these real like messed up lives, and I like I really liked how you hit on like uh, people try to be like youth ministers to address their own wounds as opposed to their um, love of the Lord. That they go if if I do X Y you know like if I'm going to do this really good thing because I was impacted by it. like we used to see this in household all the time um, have a drink we would have guys who wanted to join our household because they had a youth minister or they or they heard a speaker who was in a who who was in A and D G and they wanted to be a part of it because it made them feel good right. And it was like, oh, you can always kind of tell like, you've got to work on your own like self-image a little bit. And you've got to like like that's not why you join a household because some guy you saw when you were you know, eighteen and like through a twenty-minute talk impacted your life. That's kind of not the point of this. You know, and, one of the yeah. Are you still going, Luke? Uh, well, no. Okay, no, no, fine. I Go just ahead. wanted to jump in before Everett made fun of fat people again. But the uh, <laughs> But the one hey, of the who said it slaughter a pig. That's Go true. Ahead. That's true. I mean, you just you just did with your words. If that's what you want to call me. No, you uh, understand. On on this podcast, I also said that the majority of Evanescence fans are fat girls. So go on, Gilmer. I, I cannot believe I just I, Gilmer. I'll get, let you talk in a second, but I cannot believe that I'm recording this right now. My career is over. Well, uh, I, I, I would never say these things in a public forum. I don't know why I'm doing it now, but because hey, this is as public as it gets, there are dozens of Luke's family that listen to this. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, Gomer, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so uh, anywho, um, I, one of the things that I did was um, I realized two years ago, very similar things that you were saying, that my mom, who worked in a parish for years, says uh, when I th- was considering becoming a priest, she said, whatever you do, don't become diocesan. And I was like, really, why? Because that's what my, it was either Franciscan or diocesan. And she said, because you'll lose your faith. And she had worked in a parish office for years, but she saw the way, number one, parish culture would grind up priests. Uh, the, my mom came up with the phrase, everybody loves a seminarian, but, every, but uh, everyone can find a reason to hate their pastor. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, you know. But then she talked about um, how parish life can make, your, can make your prayer life seem like a, 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 a job description, right? So, like, you, whenever you're at home and you want to say the rosary, you almost feel like you should clock in. Or at my parish, we have adoration. Um, I remember I used to go to adoration all the time before I was employed by the church, and it takes, like, this Herculean effort just to get into the doors now. And I remember um, a, a friend of mine, she used to do adoration about four times a week, and uh, I said, how was your prayer life? Before she was hired by the church, I said, how's your prayer life? And she said, oh, you know, it's, it's great. I do this, I do that. And I said, listen, if you don't fight for it, it's going to disappear. And she's like, what? I'm going to be working for the church. It's right next door. And I was like, it's going to disappear. And sure enough, about two months into it, I, said, I checked in with her. And I was like, how's your prayer life? And she's like, I haven't been to adoration since the first week. And I was like, it, wow. just, it just consumes you. And one of the things that really touched my heart, so like two years ago, I, I gave this talk to my parish staff. I do the annual parish retreat, which is kind of a, this is a bad idea, but I do it every year for the whole staff. And I said, um, if it, it, staff and the school, we have a K through eight school, pre-K through eight school. And I said, if you are not praying, please quit. Please quit your job. No one's going to judge you. Find a better job or a different job and quit working for the church. Because if you are not praying, you are one scandal away from kicking people out of the church or pushing people out of the church. Because praying, I mean, our job is to make disciples, whether you're cleaning the floors, teaching theology, or, um, or doing the liturgy. Like, your job is to make disciples. And when we're not focused on the worship and adoration of God or the love of neighbor, we are ruining the church. And we can't do that without personal prayer. So how many youth ministers did I meet that never went to adoration unless it was with their teens, you know, just crazy. A lot. And, 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 um, and I mean, there's some, there's a reality too in working in parish life that it's really hard to have routine. It's one of the things I like about it is you have flexible hours. You have, uh, um, something new to work on every week, but the, the crappy thing is you have no routine, which makes it then difficult to have the discipline of prayer. Uh, and I mean, this was a trap that I fell into, uh, eventually in ministry, you get, you get too busy and, um, slowly had to, you know, let the Lord break my faith in order to rebuild it back up. Um, gosh, now you get into personal, personal crap here. How'd you pull that out of me? Um, catching foxes. It's, it's called the, it's called the catching foxes bump. I, I mean, the most fruitful people I have met in ministry, um, who have been doing it for a long time, have prayer lives, have strong prayer lives. And um, they learned to have strong prayer lives in ministry because at some point they lost their prayer life after they started working for the church. And I, and I hope you, when listening to this uh, podcast, all 12 of you, uh, you're, not, you're not scandalized by, by that. But, I mean, there, there is truly a reality to um, 
and I've become more and more aware of this over the years, um, bigger and stronger and more faithful men than me have fallen. Um, and I, I try to be uh, aware of that um, and really try to focus in on, okay, what, how do I pray? How do I find discipline in prayer? Um, how, do I, how am I giving ministry over to the Lord and making sure that he's blessing the apostolate and actually, um, and actually doing what he's calling me to do? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and making sure that I have a, a relationship with him um, and his blessed mother um, and not making ministry my relationship with him, uh, which can become a, a really difficult yeah. um, mm -hmm. boundary to have. One of well, the, and I, oh, sorry, you go, Luke, and then me, and then Everett. Oh, my gosh. And, thank you. Oh, my gosh. I can, I, I can actually talk. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but, like, just uh, going back to your ideas why people – do youth ministry because they want to, like, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Like they want to like, please like me, please like me, you know, or, um, if you like when we are praying, especially when you work for the church, it's always very tempting to pray for the stuff you are working on as opposed to your own interior life first. And it's, it's important. It's, and it's always, I think, uh, I think we're always trying to ask for like insights or we're, or, or we are praying for, for like, for, um, other stuff that involves our like work as opposed to being open and trying to, uh, trying to like receive what Christ has for us. And which, which like then just, it drains us, you know, and you're mm -hmm. that, and you're, and you aren't a reservoir. You are just pouring yourself out and you are completely empty. Right. So, we just, I, I think there's got to be, and I, I think people like you, this is why I'm like really excited to hear about what you are doing, are going out there and saying, hey, like if we don't do this, we're going to kill ourselves. Mm -hmm. Or like we already kind of are. You know? Well, I, I, I mean, I, gosh, I feel like when I came out of Franciscan and then subsequently for the next five years while I was working in, in youth ministry, I was told I had to have a massive youth group, which takes a lot of work. Um, do several retreats a year, go to every conference and camp on World Youth Day, and uh, and make retreat shirts and build a gigantic music ministry and run out a whole liturgy myself. And, I mean, you could go on and on and on, and all this was necessary in order to have a successful youth ministry. And at some point I looked at this and said, this is crap. Like, I'm killing myself trying to build all these things that I think are necessary, and none of it's working. If I actually look at the fruit of it, and then when I actually thought about, well, what's the fruit of it? What what are the fruitful relations? What was the actual fruitful formula for forming a young person, which was what my job was to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It was the handful of young people that I mentored in a small environment around a coffee table, and I was like, "Well, that's simple. I can do that." And I I just basically at some point decided I'm going to forget everything I've ever learned about youth ministry just in terms of all the method and program stuff, not about encounter and prayer and mentoring. Uh, and I'm going to rethink the way ministry is done and how do I put a mentor in the life of every young person? And how do I make sure that that mentor is a strong, faithful Catholic who has a prayer life? Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, that's what my apostolate is wait, about. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, um, so let I, me I, let me ask you some real quick specific questions about what you just said. Okay, so you said, how do I put a mentor in every kid's life? Um, when we look at that, how often is, um, okay. So let's say you have a ministry of 300 kids at a typical suburban, large regional suburban parish. 
Uh, you, not many parishes are like that, but I know yours is. So go ahead. Yeah, well, <laughs> mine is seven hundred fifty, but I was, I was, I was dumbing it down for the for the masses, uh, you plebeians or you peasants who uh, eat the scraps from my table. But uh, the notion of okay, so let's say whatever two hundred, one hundred fifty. I don't know what humans have. Uh, you have a, a large group of kids, and not a large group of adults who are willing to step up and engage. Uh, engage youth ministry at all so you have some people who are warm bodies some people who are sold out for christ some people who like their quote-unquote catholic identity what what is the next step if you if you want a small group of one to ten one to eight and yet the only people who are real disciples of jesus that are also coming forward to serve youth ministry is more like one out of every 30 then what do you do right uh well the first thing is uh, i I will not volunteer for a program in my parish. I'm too busy and I have no interest. And programs disgust me, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, I will volunteer, though, to meet with some teens in my house or somebody else's house or a coffee shop or someplace that is non threatening. Um, <laughs> and in compliance and, with your diocesan safe environment policy. Go on. Right, right. Well, yeah. No, and I strongly recommend following diocesan policies. Um, I'm not advocating that you wouldn't, but uh, regardless, I mean, we're, we're shooting here. Um, so, uh, yeah, what, the way, what I would say is, one, if you have 750 teenagers in your, in your program or 250 or whatever, uh, whatever the amount, why are those 250 people coming in the door? If they're coming in the door because they're truly being spiritually fed uh, and they're truly being ministered to and they want to be there, Apparently you're doing something right. So, uh, you know, you could probably build a, build some sort of ministry or supplemental ministry on top of that, which is small group based. But uh, if they're coming in the door because they're coming in the door for sacramental prep, which is the case in a lot of parishes that might have hundreds of teens participating. Gomer, I don't know that that's the case in your parish. I get the impression your parish has a little bit of a different outlook on ministry. Um yeah, I wouldn't start youth ministry. Uh, I wouldn't even connect my youth ministry to. Well, that's a whole other thing: confirmation versus youth ministry. Uh, I I always say you start a small group ministry with one small group. Find find eight teams that you're passionate about. Find them one mentor. Get that small group going strong. Make sure the mentor's in relationship with the parents. Um, when that small group meets, should not be on the same night of the week as every other small group. Because then it's a program um, saying like Sunday nights is going to be our small group night. And, and we're going to have, well, you just eliminated probably 80% of the adults who could volunteer in that ministry that are in your parish because they might not want to give up their Sunday nights. Um, I know I won't, I won't give up my Sunday nights. Um, but as soon as you say Everett mentor a handful of young people on your own time uh, when you're available, sure. I, I, I meet with my group Thursday at their lunch period at their high school and that's their youth ministry for the week. Um, so I, I, this is why it drives me crazy the way that we think about youth ministry and why I said I really had to take a, take a step to forget everything I learned because we think so programmatically. And if the goal is meet the basic pastoral needs of a young person in your parish, you have to identify what those needs are and how you're going to meet them. And there's so many ideas that I have outside the box of what is normally taught in youth ministry that I was like, man. I don't want to have a youth mass on Sunday nights, but I'd love to have a, a house mass on a Wednesday once a month that my pastor comes to. And then we have ice cream in the, in the kitchen afterwards. 
And that teaches a young person to love the liturgy just as much as the Sunday, uh, Sunday youth mass liturgy is. But no, we all have to have the big worship band with the drums and the guitars and the, the you know, nine times out of 10 crappy music. One, you know, <laughs> one time out of 10, it's, it's really, really good. But, you know, we, we teach every parish to do youth ministry the same way. And, and at, the, at the heart of it, we're not meeting young people where they're at and they're meeting their basic pastoral needs. If you want to have a small group ministry, I believe it has to start small. And in fact, every good ministry I've ever seen started has started small. Uh, the ministries that have grown huge around the country, they all started somewhere and they all started grassroots and small. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's that's where I say, if it, I would I would say never start with 750, start with eight. And then just see how, how fast and how big it grows. And maybe it never grows past those eight, but if you form those eight to be lifelong disciples, phenomenal, fantastic. Mm. Mm. There's a that's, sense of me that <laughs> no, there's a sense of me that totally agrees with the notion of like I remember when I first met you, we had a, it started online the conversation. Well, I mean, I, we met at Franciscan, but uh, <laughs> it was but, Tinder. Yeah, <laughs> it was Grinder. Um, but yeah, we we no. had <laughs> I I swiped right twice when I saw how physically fit you were. Um, but I uh, I I remember the conversation that you had about a certain national youth ministry program. And whether or not it was forming disciples <laughs> or just doing rock solid catechesis, and, <clears throat> and yeah, and it started. A, oh, I'm so screwed. It started. It's, well, Randy it's, Routes, I love you. You're a great man, and I love Life Teen for the for the for the heart of it. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So shortly after that conversation with you, Gormer, I I got my I said something in a, what I thought was a private forum, but apparently it was more public than I realized, and got myself in trouble with the. Uh, yeah. uh, well, Mark Markhart's coming on uh, Saturday to my parish, so uh, I'll ask him about it. But um, lovely, I know, sure but... he hates me. <laughs> so I mean, no, I'm sure he loves me because he's a good Catholic man, and Mark is a, is a fantastic man. But but yeah, I, I have some philosophical differences of opinion with Life Team, right? And, and I think there's room for that in the church. But go ahead. Well, so we, you had made some comments on this on this Facebook forum, and I was like the first to like. What the hell are you thinking about? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course, it forms disciples. I, you know, I have a youth group of 500 kids, and you know, blah blah. And then um, me and you met to talk after um, Sumville, Sumville, Denver, and you said, uh, you know, I, I think it was something that um, you know a mentor of yours had said to you. It was essentially, how many of your kids would you say are disciples? Like, you're not worried about them going to college. You're not worried about them. Um, you know, losing their faith. How many of them have a prayer life, have a relationship with Christ? And you said, well, you know, I got 200 people. And, and over and over again, same question. You were like, well, okay, it's like 30. And oh, okay, well, where did those 30 come from? Well, me and a couple other core members really like work with them. We sit down, we talk with them, we mentor them. They they are the ones asking questions and spending extra time in prayer with us and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, so they're the ones I'm actually discipling. Whereas the others I'm teaching or I'm catechizing or I'm, you know, preaching or whatever, but I'm not actually discipling. And that's where you took a a hard turn. And it was funny for me because when you said it like that, I was like, oh, yeah, there are so many kids who to this day have, some of them have even come back to the woodlands and are, you know, they volunteer in youth ministry today uh, because they have their stuff together, because they are disciples, because they had conversion experiences and never stopped growing in their relationship with Christ. Because they were discipled by either me or a handful of people who were core members who were really believed in God and really believed in youth ministry. And uh, just, 
that's what kind of clued me in. So I, I feel like the tension is I have all of these kids. I can't just ignore them. But at the same time, I need and, – and many of them are there for the sacrament of confirmation. We do a sophomore year with a prereq freshman year. But then you look at the juniors and the seniors who stay. And many of them not only stay, but they volunteer. They're super active. And it's to the tune of about you know, 150, 200. And you start to see this, and you're like, okay, so the program itself is, is having an impact in their lives. But at the same time, 200 juniors and seniors compared to – you know, this is back in my day. So I'd have like, let's say I had 65 seniors who were super active my last year, a full year in youth ministry, which was to me a record achievement because the year before it was like 35. Um, right. But they they were active. They were all active. We all I had a relationship with all of them, me or their two core members. Um, but we, you know, like but there was still 600 kids or 500 or 400 kids that were freshmen and sophomores coming for the sacrament. You know, so it's like 100 or 150 versus 400, you know, and, but even and that's though, a really good that's a really good success rate based on based on uh, what some statistics are. I mean, uh, well, I'm a pretty good youth minister. Once you start to. Yeah. Once you start to get youth ministers stop BSing, the youth ministers I talk to, usually the success rate is 10 percent is considered really good uh, retention after after confirmation. Um, and. and when I saw when I shifted to small group ministry, and actually put upperclassmen and really focused on on getting upperclassmen to invest into a small group, and just make that the primary ministry that that was ministering to them, I saw my success rates of retention, and then into uh, into college like skyrocket, you know, anywhere from sixty to eighty percent of the young people remaining involved uh, post confirmation, um, not just remaining involved but actually diving into. Uh, um, diving into the faith and, and their formation. I mean, discipleship, this is what drives me crazy, is is that, uh, you know, in Princess Bride, I forget what the word is, but he says, I, I, you know, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Like, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, there's discipleship. I don't think that a lot of people who are using the word in the church today understand what discipleship is. I, I always say that the church operates today on a Sermon on the Mount mentality, uh, because in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he had a lot of people listening to him, and he gave really, really important content. Uh, so important, it took up several chapters of Matthew's gospel, uh, and people still quote it to this day. Really important content. Nowhere in the scripture passage when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, does it say that anyone was converted by his sermon? In fact, if anything, they were probably turned off by some of the things he was saying. He didn't make likely a single disciple that day because of that sermon. Um, but he was preaching to large numbers of people, really important content. Who was it that, that, that spread that content throughout the world? Matthew, one of his 12. And, you know, his 12 were the, one, were the ones who changed the entire world. They lived with him every day for three years. They were mentored by him. And, and that's, that's the difference is, is that the church seems to think that in order to evangelize 750 youth in our parish or thousands of young people around, around the world or just the millions and billions of Catholics around the world, we have to gather large numbers of people into a space in order to communicate because there's just so many people who have needs. It doesn't work. Jesus turns that whole philosophy on the head. If you want to change the world, minister to 12. And and watch what happens. Um, it duplicates. One of one of them will murder you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're never going to have a hundred percent success rate. If you do, you're doing better than Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, hopefully, but the it's whole that one guy you got to watch out for. It's always the quiet ones. The whole concept of discipleship was it was a small number of people. There was one rabbi and there was a handful of people who would live with the rabbi. And, and, like that was what the method of teaching of the, the Jewish people was. Discipleship actually had a, a method and philosophy behind it. And we've lost that sense in our church. Um, discipleship, particularly with young people, requires mentoring. And, and I mean, that's probably the biggest thing I'm harping on. I believe that forum that, that I got myself in trouble in and you and I ended up in the conversation. On, the question was, does – and you could insert any youth ministry organization or program form disciples – and everyone was like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I just decided to throw something out there controversial to get a, a little bit of a different response and actually create real discussion. And I was like, well, gosh, I can remember doing – this time it was life nights. And I don't think I made a single disciple out of my life nights. But that's because life nights were catechetical in nature. They weren't, they weren't mentoring. I wasn't meeting pastoral needs in, in that environment. Uh, I had 100 kids in a room. And I, there's no way I could, I could individualize formation and mentoring and meeting pastoral needs in that environment because there were 100 people in the room. Um, and in order to grow the ministry, I figured out, let's get smaller. Um, instead of one large group, let's do 10 small groups uh, that meet on their own time in their own space. So, you know, I'm a renegade. And what can I say? <laughs> You're a renegade of funk. The evangelicals figured this out a long time ago, but as usual, Catholics won't do Yeah, but well, here's the deal with the evangelicals. Like, we say that very often, but I steal from all the best evangelicals. All of them. I, I buy all of their stuff. I read through it all. And the vast majority of stuff is extremely surface level. It's to build relationships with one another. Uh, and it does, and it focuses on initial proclamation. There's very few things that go beyond initial proclamation. I mean, obviously they don't have the sacrament. So it's like, read your scripture, have that daily devotional time with Christ, and then begin investing in people around you, right? That's enough to cause dramatic change. As Catholics, we catechize without evangelizing. And so you have these half formed disciples as evangelicals. I feel like they hyper evangelize without super catechizing them, but they still have the response of faith. And so they do a lot of stuff. But one of the things I've realized, um, with with evangelicals and um you know we talk about catching up catholics did this well before them we catholics had these small formation groups i mean the legion of mary has uh, was doing door-to-door evangelism before the mormons made it cool um the uh and they didn't make it cool by the way but uh they they were we have so many instances of well, of of amazing formation, but we also had small parishes where everyone knew everyone in neighborhood parishes. Mm-hmm. You knew your neighbor and the kids that went to your church. In my neighborhood, I was telling someone today. In my neighborhood, not only do I, I mean, I know some of my neighbors, but I don't really know any of my neighbors. And when I try to get to know them, they back away. And the funniest thing is it's so bad now that they don't even open the blinds. I have, I have four neighbors that I can see their backyards from my upstairs. They don't even open their blinds in their backyard. I have never seen their, their bedroom blinds open every, ever. <laughs> and, and he's looking. And I'm looking. I have, I have multiple telescopes lined up ready to go. But uh, the, reason being, the reason why I say that is 
when people come to church, they just come to get their Jesus Eucharist and to, you know, mm-hmm. the vitamin and to get out of there. They're not coming for fellowship. They're coming for checklists. And so part of this dynamic is to sh- you can't shift. You can't all of a sudden tell parents one day, I'm not going to confirm any of your kids just because they meet all the requirements. That's stupid because the one requirement is they have to love Christ. And then the parents say they're Catholic. That's enough. Give it to them. They have a right to the sacrament. And then you realize the parents don't care about Christ. And so you're trying to do this massive. Well, now you're trying to turn the heart of the entire parish. Now, you only need about 10% of the parish to turn the entire heart of the parish around. But getting to that 10%, I would say my parish because of things like Acts and because of things like me, <laughs> um, I would say that my <laughs> parish is doing better than most. But it's still, I mean, you find the checklist mentality is still mm-hmm. overwhelmingly dominant. Well, let me ask you this. Since you got on confirmation, and, yeah. and now you're going to get another soapbox out of me. But And this is just, yeah. I, I'm still formulating my thoughts around this. So I don't know if I still if I even believe what I'm, what I'm about to say. But, um, Gomer, how, how many weeks... Do you actually need or how many sessions do you actually need with a young person to teach them just the theology and the importance of the sacrament of confirmation? Uh, just like specific sac prep? Yeah, just specific sac prep. Uh, I mean, you could do it in a couple hours, honestly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I, this is what, and granted, just the theology for sac prep is, is shouldn't be enough for sac prep. Right. But I saw the other day a parish was releasing. We now have a three-year process for preparation for the sacrament of confirmation, and I thought in my mind, what? Like that's an if I to me as a parent now looking at the hoops that I put people through in my sacramental prep programs of a year or two years and all the different things they had to do this many service hours and this many, you know, these retreats and this uh, formation and all these classes and you can't miss this. And you got to fill out a bazillion paperwork things. And in some cases, interview with a pastor and all, all of it with good intentions. I mean, some parishes require you to sign in for mass and, you know, to make sure that you're there, which is great. Sacramental prep to, to actually prepare somebody for a sacrament if they're really a true disciple of Christ, shouldn't take very long. You know, formation, we try to pack in like formation of the entire faith into one or two, or one sacramental year. And so much so yeah. that we say, well, now it's got to bleed over into two. Meanwhile, RCIA, in a lot of cases, teaching somebody who really doesn't know anything about the faith, like takes uh, a year. Six, if, well, if six to re- eight months of a catechumenate. Yeah. Right. Right. So why are we taking people who are not the catechumens? And making them go through two, three years of preparation for a sacrament. Why are we making people jump through hoops for grace? And that, that's where I get at it, is, is I would rather see parishes say, when you're ready to receive this sacrament or this grace, um, we will prepare you for it. Uh, when, if you're not ready, that means you're not practicing, you're not doing disciplines, you're not doing whatever. Fine. Yeah. You know, let's journey with you through stages of discipleship and formation until you're ready to receive grace. And sometimes the grace is what prepares you for formation. I would say, I would say two very specific things on that. Uh, Number one, I teach uh, a class called inclusion and it is a modified form of the RCIA for well-formed Protestants or Protestants who have been going to mass for years. And the, 
the the right itself says in like appendix h it's like if they are baptized and well catechized do not make them go through the rcia the full process just give them a period of probation instruction to cover their ignorance and um an experience of the community right so that's what i do in inclusion it's 10 weeks instead of 10 months and so um by doing that, we have pulled in a ton of people who have been spouses for a decade, going to Mass every single Sunday, every Holy Day of Obligation, raising their kids in the faith. And then every time they looked at their calendar for work and then their calendar for RCI, they're like, uh, maybe not this year. And then my thing came up, and they're like, yes, I want to do this. So great. we talk, and the, the great thing is my class is typically 12 people, no more than 12 on average, this year alone, it's 25. We've never had this experience. I do it every semester. So, I mean, I do 25 people a year, basically. But um, now I'm doing 25 people in just the spring. And I'm talking with this young man. And I looked at him and I said, listen, you don't know anything about the faith. But you also, I mean, you've been baptized. You you shouldn't be in the, the regular RCIA. Because he was baptized Catholic, too. And I was like, you know what? We're going to do this one-on-one. And we're going to go through everything we need to go through on your schedule at your time. But we're going to do this. And I go, what do you think? And he looked at me and he goes, I would want nothing more than to do this one-on-one because I know nothing about my faith. And I started thinking about that. And I was like, okay, here we go. You know, like <laughs> this is – this is, and now in my head, um, before we even had this conversation, I was like, what if I pull out the five or six other people who are in inclusion but just need adult confirmation and I'm going to – because classes cover similar content. I was like, you know, two birds, one stone. These are people who are getting married in Mexico, and the priest won't marry them unless they they have adult confirmation. And you know, even though that isn't what the canon canon law says, um, but every priest in Mexico invents canon law. So, uh, so, um, so anyways, I don't agree with that at all. Yeah, no. Then you haven't spent enough time with Mexican priests about this stuff because uh, I do literally every oh my gosh. week. Every well, week. you know, you could say pastors make up rules all the time. All the time. Go ahead. All the time. Yeah. So, anywho, anywho, let me button it up by saying. Um, number one, I see overwhelmingly the need for rigorous individual discipleship um, where two people just invest in in the one notion of discipleship. But then the other thing is uh, getting back to the idea of sacrament preparation. Um, the reason – I feel like the reason why we have two-year and three-year and four-year programs – there's a couple of churches out here that have a four-year program – is is number one we are we are out of fear desperately trying to delay them leaving the church them graduating so people who the church has said many many times do not do (laughs) right right but the the individual in the pew who's running the program is afraid that they will leave their faith so maybe over those four years they'll appreciate it in fact what happens is they resent it even more um but the other reason is all those hoops is it's trying in the best of times it is trying to inculcate in these kids a desire of doing service, a desire of learning the catechism. Because, you know, we do a one-year program which walks through the four parts of the catechism in that one year. I mean, like straight up what you said. And we require a year of life team before they come in. So it's essentially a two-year program, but it's really a one-year program with a prereq year. Um, but we do. We walk through the whole catechism. And then when we do their confirmation retreat, it is a full charismatic preach for conversion retreat because that's what i wrote seven years ago and i've been giving them pretty much ever since and uh, we fly in father paul you know all this stuff and we just witness to them and kids have big conversions but it's not not half of them right you know so it's it's, it is this thing where it's like we're doing the best we can with what we have 
And at the same time, we all know that there's something that's not working about it. But the alternative is, okay, well, I'm just not going to focus on the 80% who don't care about Christ. I'm just going to focus on the 20% who kind of sort of do. What are we going to do for those 80% in the meantime? I, I, and I don't know. That's why I said I, I don't have a formulated formula. I mean, I'm just on a soapbox, a crazy guy on a, on a podcast with 12 people listening Lobbing grenades at fat people. I gotcha. And that that is on a soapbox, but uh, you know, it, it's almost like we're saying, you know, with tax forms, you have a, a like a, you have a, you know, ten four. I don't know what all the numbers are, but you have a ten forty, and then you have a ten forty easy. Yeah. You know, some people need the easy form, and you'd be surprised how many how many parents will become huge supporters of what you do when you make life easy on them, <laughs> or or even parishioners or people who are going through the track. I, I, there's a priest out here who's a really popular young priest. Uh, his parents, when he needed the sacrament of confirmation, approached the parish and you know found out what the requirements were for the program. The program had all kinds of ridiculous hoops, uh, like most confirmation programs do. And so in having these hoops to jump through, uh, the program wasn't very good. They were, they were like, he's homeschooled. He's really well-formed. Like he went, I think, a couple of times to the formation classes to get the sacrament. And it was like ridiculous. They, they, he hated it. The whole thing was bad. So they approached the parish and said, can we just have him confirmed? Like we'll form him at home. Can we have him, can we have him prepared? Can we meet individually? They were trying to work with the parish. The parish wouldn't do it. So they decided – and the day of confirmation, they just showed up and put him in the back of the line. <laughs> the bishop had to confirm him. And that's how he got his confirmation. Now he's a priest. So it, it all worked out. <laughs> uh, not that I recommend people go, go through that process uh, or, or, or take advantage of the system like that. But it, but it is true. We shouldn't withhold grace from people. You're not supposed to make your sacramental preparation programs your ministry to people. Um, and there's also a reason why parishes do four-year um, uh, confirmation programs to keep people involved in the program because we're trying to delay them leaving. That youth minister who's running that program or that DRE is afraid they're going to lose their job, so they delay the sacrament and they hold the carrot in front of people. Uh, I, I'm, I'm serious. There's a, a diocese. I won't name the diocese, but that did restored order, so they dropped the age of confirmation down to you know yeah. second or third grade. Um, tons of youth ministers then lost their jobs, yeah. and that actually wasn't a bad thing. Because now all these parishes have rehired new youth ministers several years later, and the youth ministry is excellent in the diocese. Um, but it started with um, uh, once once the pastor realized, oh, now all these young people aren't coming to the to the youth ministry because they don't aren't required to. Then he realized how how much that those youth ministers had no idea what they were doing and weren't weren't um, weren't discipling young people. So they, these parishes came up with different methods to disciple young people and found somebody who, who could uh, run that. But I mean, there's a fear, you know, yeah. and, and I just I just don't think we should be we should be withholding grace for people so as to save people's jobs or so as to try to keep them Catholic for longer um, and delay the inevitable uh, torture. I mean, I, I, I actually write this in this book. So the, the book I'm working on right now that's almost done, it's called The Catholic Youth Ministry Problem. It's going to make me some enemies in the church. Um, which is going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> but it's called the, the Catholic Youth Ministry Problem, and it talks about all the things that I see that are not working and what I think actually um, – the experiences I have of things that have worked. Not that my method is the one that should be used, but, um, but in the book I, I say um, – gosh, where was I going with this? Now, now I'm, I'm so, uh, so on a soapbox I can't even remember. But um, in the book I say um, – yeah, Gomer saved me. 
We can edit it in. <laughs> well, we can edit it in post. But you were saying, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll come to me in a second. You no, you ahead, were ta- right? well. You were talking specifically about four-year programs. The fear. Here's the other reason: youth ministers got fired from their job. Well, and, and I, was- I, I think what you are pointing to is the fact that for a long time we've been acting like the church doesn't have to evangelize you and that the church doesn't have to doesn't have to walk with you you're you're getting that at home and so what we've had with a lot of the baby boomers is a whole generation of people who who once they were kind of didn't have the shackles of their parents faith didn't really have a relationship with Christ, but had the ability to just like be with Christ. Or sorry, just 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 to be Catholic as they thought they could they like uh, you know could be. This is gonna sound really odd. And like, well, what we lost with all that was Christ. Actually, it was like a really. We- uh, sorry, I'm like so off base now. But anyways, no, we had we have a Catholic identity instead of Christ Himself. We had Catholic yeah, identity and, instead of and, Christ. Yeah, and and so like that's why it's this 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 like whole like uh, thing of like let's just you know like pump them into these things for you know as for like as long as we can content 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 something's got to stick they'll still be catholic in name what does it matter like who knows what this all actually means any anyways like that's what it comes down to because we don't want to reach out to if we don't have the if we truly do not have the um if, if, if we don't have a strong relationship with christ it is impossible to minister to others it's impossible yeah. to reach out to others i, I you know I say in my book, the only measure of success, the only measure of success for any ministry in terms of a ministry that's faith formation or evangelistic in nature is whether you're making lifelong disciples. Um, and, and if you're falling short of that, uh, your your programs aren't making any lifelong disciples or you're making minimal uh, lifelong disciples. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if you're halfway there. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you've got hundreds of people participating. If they're not becoming lifelong disciples, it's a failure. And the way that I looked at Sacramento programs in general is that you got all these hoops, you got all these year-long processes, or two-year, or three-year, or four-year. You got you're driving parents crazy with it. Uh, you got all these requirements you're sticking on people to receive grace. And granted, there has to be formation for the sacrament. There has to be an understanding of what's being received. There needs to be a receptivity to it. I'm not railing and saying we should get rid of all sacramental preparation. But I am saying that the, what we do for sacramental preparation, particularly for confirmation, is ridiculous. At least that's what I feel like in the church. Torture, this is what I say in the book, torture in the catechism of the Catholic Church is a serious sin. <laughs> and, and, if that is the case, <laughs> and if that is the case, there are many catechists who are going to burn in hell. I mean, we are torturing our young people and their parents. You are, and then we, you are smacking the crap out of your desk while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're hitting the balance. I'm like, yeah, you're hitting the balance off the desk. Yeah. No, tor- torture is a serious sin. We are torturing people, and then we wonder why they never want to come back to church. It's like, well, because they've been in our formation programs. <laughs> and with I'm that, right, I think— I think with that, real quick, to go back with that real quick. I had a, a very good friend who's a, been an evangelist in the church for 20-some years who came as a sponsor to one of my parent sessions. And I didn't want to do this parent session. I was told I had to do it. Uh, and uh, and I inherited the method and the model uh, from the previous DRE. And uh, it was like 3 o'clock on a Sunday— three o'clock PM on a Sunday and it was required. And it was like two hours long, three o'clock on a Sunday is like 
golden football time. I mean, nobody yeah. wanted to be at church. And so, uh, and the only reason we had it then, it was because it was the only time that the parish hall was available on that particular Sunday. I said to my friend afterwards, I was like, how was it? I knew it wasn't good. I said to her afterwards and, and she said, you really need to serve alcohol at these things. <laughs> I mean, and she was right though. I mean, and actually there's some wisdom to that. Like, like mm-hmm. We we shouldn't torture people. It well, that's is. why I think the theology on tap stuff, honestly, if it really wants it to work, not like work, but if if it wants to be what it was in the '90s, it should just be in people's houses and just have like some cakes, and have some beer pong, and have a person give an interesting talk and just hang out. Mm-hmm. But and but we are um we're like way late. But yeah. thank you for doing this. This was yeah. awesome. Uh, How long people... is your podcast? Uh, usually about an hour to like now, hour and a half. So okay. this is perfect. Uh, well, I can where... plenty of things to edit out. <laughs> <laughs> no, where uh, where can people find more stuff about your organization? Oh uh, yeah, plug my stuff. Um, so yeah. Saint Andrew Missionaries, the plan is to launch uh, on the feast day of Saint Andrew, um, if we're <laughs> don't hold me to that. Uh, but which is November 30th this year. So there's there's no website uh, or information about it yet, um, but I'm super excited about it. Uh, God willing, it'll get off the ground and, and we can provide services. Uh, otherwise, I have a website called everettfritz.com. Uh, I have a book out, um, uh, the chastity book called Freedom, uh, Battle Strategies for Conquering Temptation, a uh, masturbation book, um, <laughs> which, you know, people have asked me, they said, is it a chastity book? I said, yeah, it is, but really at the heart of it, it's a book about discipleship. And so even if you're not struggling with those sexual sins, uh, I think that there's a, a good amount of information in there that you could pull out of it. So buy the book, um, which is also available for Lighthouse Kiosks. So you can buy it in bulk and put it in your kiosk in the back of your church. Um, and what else? I think that's about it. That's all I got to plug. Sweet. Thanks thanks for having me on, guys. This oh, yeah, great. man. This was awesome. This is yeah, I'll listen to this podcast just because I'm uh, <laughs> curious what, what what exactly I said that's going to ruin my career. So <laughs> listen, there, we actually have an episode that's called "I Might Get Fired for This." So, <laughs> Who was the guest? Oh no, that was just me. I mean, really, just Luke. Luke was the guest talking okay. about a lot of the stuff that you are talking about. So, yeah, yeah. man, uh, thank you very much. Uh, to all of our listeners, give us a like over on the Facebook, facebook.com slash Catching Foxes Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at the Luke V. And I'm at Lay Evangelist. And we are uh, at C Foxes Podcast. Get us a, a review on iTunes. Now, here's our outro song. Boom. I forgot how the beat goes. I love Mad Men and Roger Sterling. All right. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye, Masturbation Man.